Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Adam Elder, author of the book New Kids in the World Cup about the U.S. team from 1990. Before we get going, subscribe to my writing site at grantwall.com. I am in Qatar doing daily coverage of World Cup 2022. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. Enjoying the first day of the World Cup. We're off and running, and now <laughs> the nerves begin to set in. There's the big one. The big one kicks off tomorrow or today, whenever you're listening to this. USA Wales will be kicking off Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. local here in Qatar. That's a late kickoff, but uh, the U.S. team has been adjusting to that the last couple of days with night sessions. Um, That's interesting. They were doing another one tonight. Um, It gets cooler at night here. It's actually pretty comfortable in the 70s tonight. We'll talk about the U.S. news and Tyler Adams being named captain for the World Cup. A lot of good stuff coming out of the press conference, Greg Berhalter and Tyler Adams today. Uh, But let's open with the the opening game, which uh, not the result necessarily I was expecting. I I wasn't expecting Qatar to win necessarily. I was expecting them to play much better than they did. Qatar nil, Ecuador two, and Ecuador really dominated this game from the opening whistle, uh, at least for the first half. Maybe Qatar was a bit better in the second half, but at halftime, you had thousands of Qatari home fans leaving the stadium, and that's not a good look, and neither was their team. Well, it it was sort of heartening on the day that was meant to be the celebration of Qatar, that they could buy as much as they want, uh, I saw Barney Rone of The Guardian write that the stadium was a tribute to human vanity. Uh, they could buy this you know, very elaborate opening ceremony. They could buy Morgan Freeman being a part of their uh, festivities. They could buy any number of things, including the World Cup. But they could not buy a good football team. And in some ways, that is also, I would say, the struggle of, and not to compare the manner in which these two countries try and go about it, but the struggle that the United States have gone through, which is that we have all this sporting power, sporting will, economic resources that the United States can put behind anything, but you can't buy the cultural developmental elements that countries like Brazil and Argentina that are not the economic powers that the U.S. are. And Qatar tried for 12 years to put together a good national team, and they stink. And they were just awful in this game for almost the full 90 minutes. They had some periods here and there where you can tell that they've gone through some very elaborate training sessions and they've been together for a while. But incredibly heavy first touches, lack of awareness defensively, inability to really press collectively to really cause Ecuador a problem in possession, late late to almost every second ball. They just didn't have it today. And the thing that surprises me is that they didn't perform to a somewhat higher level because we've seen them in Copa America. We've seen them in the Gold Cup, I thought, perform reasonably well. But you almost wonder if this occasion was too big for them, despite the fact that they played in the Arab Cup at home earlier, less than a year ago. Uh, They played in the Asian Cup and won that tournament. They played in major tournaments. We would think that they'd be reasonably comfortable with big stages, but they just look like a team that were dead from about the third minute on. Yeah, I mean, this is why it's so surprising to me in soccer terms, Chris, because 
winning the Asian Cup, the Asian Championship, they are the reigning champions of Asia. Asia includes some pretty good teams, Japan, South Korea, Iran, Australia. All of those teams are in this World Cup. And if you can win the Asian Cup, you're a decent team. And this was a decent Qatar team that played the United States in the Gold Cup. This was a decent team, like you said, that played in the Copa America. Those Qatar teams, with much of the many of the same players, played better, quite a bit better, actually, than this Qatar team did tonight, which does make you think the occasion was too big for them. They were nervous. They played like it. Um, they got bailed out a little bit on the third minute goal being ruled out by VAR on a weird play. One of those plays, it was like the opening game of the 2010 world cup, that moment where you had the goalkeeper come out and offside. When that happens, offside doesn't really distinguish between who's the goalkeeper and who are the defenders. It just, it needs to be two players between you and the goal. And, and there was one. And even though there was a lot of confusion about it, it was actually the right call. I think especially if you're into the the microns of you know ruling on <laughs> offside. Yeah, well, I I find that one particularly interesting and I hope that a lot of people gather that as an omen for what's to come in this World Cup because I I think that this World Cup is going to have this semi-automatic uh offside technology which has been talked about sort of vaguely, but this is sort of the implementation of it and I think we're going to see decisions where no one's even going... No, I don't think anyone was really appealing for that goal to be offside. And then because it came up in the technology, we see it. The one thing that was still unclear is it's offside from when. So the ball gets played over the top. It's not it, from the free kick. It's not offside then. The goalkeeper comes out to punch. He theoretically punches it onto the head of an Ecuadorian player. And it's, I think, from then that it's offside, or is it from that sort of next touch that he's offside? But I think it's from its punch onto the Ecuadorian player's head, and from there, it's offside. And I don't think, I mean, it's so granular. And also, I mean, ultimately gets back to the, you know, overall conversation of, is this what we want VAR to be? (laughs) Is this what we want offside to be? Because like you said, it's the correct decision. But I don't think any referee would look at that, even a VAR drawing lines would look at that and and sort of know from when to draw the lines. It's only theoretically from this technology. So I I ultimately, you know, I, I enjoyed the five minutes of the conspiracy theories that, you know, some some VAR official in some room got slipped some money and then all of a sudden that, that got overturned. But like you said, it's the correct decision, but we all kind of, again, are sat watching at home, not knowing why. Not knowing, not having any explanation for it. It comes on Twitter 10 minutes later. It comes with an image 10 minutes later. There's no official explanation. We're all just sort of left wondering. And that overall is a bad experience. It is. And, and I, I think we'd be talking about even more if this game had ended nil-nil, right? Mm-hmm. Because it did seem like Ecuador just kept dominating after that, got the penalty, got the first goal from Valencia who put the ball in the net three times in the first half, by the way. Yeah, and he scored Ecuador's last five goals at the World Cup Finals. Yeah, just a, a really good performance from him. He's lighting it up in the Turkish League, much like Haji Wright these days. And it was, for Ecuador, I think, a really impressive performance. And maybe an indicator, we'll see, 
of South American performance because we talked about heading into this tournament. This is a big tournament for South American teams, especially the big boys, Argentina and Brazil, who are among the favorites, even though it appears that the gap is widened with the top European teams and the rest of the world, including South America at World Cups over the last two decades. But Ecuador is a team that fought through difficult South American qualifying and and I thought performed well here. It's a little hard to say how well they performed until they play against a better team because it was such an abject performance from Qatar. Um, and it's a tough group, right? Because you've got the Netherlands, you've got Senegal, and and obviously it hurts tremendously that Sadio Mane is out of the tournament for Senegal, but they've still got several good players on the African champion team. And so this result puts pressure, I think, on Senegal um, moving forward here because they're not at totally full strength. They play tomorrow against the Netherlands in a game I'm looking forward to seeing, but I think the Netherlands will be favored in that game. And Senegal, like Senegal, Ecuador seems like it's going to be a big game. Massive. And I, and I also think as well for those other two teams, uh, the Senegal and the Netherlands to get a win against Qatar. Cause I think now those other teams have to look at them and it's like, well, it's not just should we win? It's by how much should we win? And every goal feels like it'll matter because of the, the, the goal difference tiebreaker. So it puts huge pressure on those games. But you're right. When they play each other, um, it's going to be massive. I, I agree with you, though, in terms of I, I mean, I went to, I went into this tournament thinking that the South American sides might struggle a little bit um, just because they've only really played each other. And I'm not sure this is the best era of South American football, just in terms of you look at even this Ecuador team. They've got some young up-and-comers. A player like Ener, Ener Valencia is a bit of a European journeyman, right? He's not necessarily you know, a league. top... Right, right. He's been in the Mexican League. I saw today Hercules Gomez uh, mentioned that there was a potential rumor where uh, he was going to end up in Toronto FC in a straight swap for Josie Altador. Um, like, this is not exactly you know a group of players that has proven themselves at a really high level. And yet, the, the young players I thought came through. Moises Caicedo in midfield was great. Even the the two LAFC players, Sebastián Méndez and José Cifuentes, I thought came on and made an impact from the bench. But again, I, I don't think we're talking about a top-level club pedigree with some of these players. And so I do think that where Ecuador finds its level in the rest of this group would be really interesting because they look fantastic today. They took advantage of an opponent that was there for the taking, but I don't know how this sort of portends for the rest of the group. I'm not going to get carried away and saying, well, Ecuador is going to look great and South America is going to look great. We thankfully have a long group stage to sort of get a full sample on all these teams. But early returns are this side looks ready for the World Cup because just as Qatar... We're overawed, we're overawed, I thought, by this occasion. A lot of the Ecuador side has not really played at major tournaments at, at big World Cups, although I guess there's a Copa America every year, so maybe they played a lot of Copa Americas. But uh, they, they could have very easily been overawed by the occasion as well, but they weren't, and they put together a very solid, comprehensive performance. One question I've got about Qatar is, what sort of ramifications are we going to see after this game? You know, someone was pointing out that at the 98 World Cup, there were three coaches fired mid-group in that <laughs> tournament. <laughs> and it's always a bit of a a mess when that happens. It doesn't happen very often, but Felix Sanchez may be in trouble. And and they want to get out of there. Who knows? I mean, like it's a it's a really weird situation now. And I mean, I mean you have that many home fans leave the stadium and just give up midway through the first game when you're only down 2-0. Um, that says something. And 
who knows what might happen here? And I got some static on this from some Twitter followers uh, or some people on Twitter, at least like I actually, from a human perspective, feel, I feel for the guitar players, you know, they had a ton of pressure on them. They stunk up the joint tonight and I don't think their lives are in danger, but I think it, they might have to deal with some stuff, um, you know, cause this is a national embarrassment. That's how it's going to be viewed. Uh, and, you know, Johnny Infantino, the FIFA president spent yesterday during an hour long speech that was really bizarre. Um, that's one way like to put in it. So, in so many ways, just the whole whataboutism thing is just off the charts here. And it's just totally messed up because if you subscribe to Johnny Infantino's logic, there is no nation on earth because no nation on earth doesn't have bad stuff in its history. There's no nation on earth where anybody can say human rights, not good in that country. And that's just obviously idiotic. Now, the one thing Johnny Infantino, I think, got right is, yeah, Europeans have been treating the rest of the world badly for 3,000 years. Okay? I'm with you on that. And Americans, by the way, have treated groups of people very badly in different parts of the world, including our own country, for less than 3,000 years. But still, um, there is that history. But the fact of the matter is the Qatari regime are not victims. They're the perpetrators, actually, in many ways, of the human rights violations that have taken place in this country. And so the whole Infantino thing took something that had, a, you know, had truth and history, but then led it to something which is a ridiculous conclusion, and, and actually an outrageous conclusion. And so I, I, I didn't know what to say beyond that after, after Infantino's performance, but it's, I think history will not look kindly upon it. Right. And, and we ultimately know whose work he's doing. Uh, we, we know, I think, in some ways, the playbook from which that comes. I mean, that's a playbook that's become pretty common uh, it, you know, in, in politics in the last few years. It's basically, the, the playbook is, we're all kind of gross, aren't we? None of us really have. It's basically nobody has the moral high ground. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. My friends can do whatever I want. Powerful people can do whatever they want because none of us have the moral high ground. And I mean, in some respect, that that's true, right? I mean, ultimately, we use products. We live in a society in which not all of our decisions are made, you know, with the well-being of others in mind, right? But that doesn't mean we can't aspire. That doesn't mean we can't try. That doesn't mean we can't point out when people make big mistakes or sort of are, are doing so with bad intentions, are not even trying to fix the problem, right? Which is, I think, what the Qataris did really for 10 years before they really put any effort into trying to fix uh, their situation with migrant workers without you know, basically until the stadiums were built, you know, doing anything to fix the problem. So I, I just, I, I couldn't believe that. And I, I can't believe a few entities that are basically just taking the money, understanding what this is and being completely shameless about how they're going to promote this regime and promote this country because they gave us a lot of money. I'm and going like, to not say, even, I'm going, yeah, I'm going to name names because I, I can say this and I don't want to put you in a bad position. Fox Sports. I was watching Fox Sports' production uh, and broadcast of this game because I was using VPN. We had a good setup watching the game uh, downstairs here in our townhouse. And um, 
it, it's it, the whole Fox Sports being in bed and taking millions and millions of dollars from the Qatari regime. It was even worse than I thought it would be. It really was uh, in terms of no, obviously no mention of human rights issues, but just almost cheerleading uh, for Qatar in the pregame. And, and that's coming, that's not initiating with the talent on screen, that's coming from the top of Fox Sports. And it, it, it invades their television broadcasts, it's guiding how they cover it on their website, it's, and it's not the fault of the people who are at much lower rungs of power there who are put in really bad positions, I think. And I just feel for them because I know a lot of them don't agree with this stuff, but it's their job. And, um, and so I was, I, I shouldn't be surprised with any of this stuff at this point, but I, I, I kind of was. Yeah, I, and and I, I actually watched this match on Telemundo just because I am uh, I am an antenna purist. Uh, I, I like to watch things as live as possible. So uh, so I watched it live with uh, with Andres Cantor, who did a, did a great job, and it was kind of cool to watch him go through the Ecuador story as well because they, they are a bit closer to it. But yeah, I mean there there are a lot of people, and I also wonder as well uh, when you look at uh, social media reaction to a lot of things um, where you know, bots or where people whose intentions are not pure are sort of defending things or what abouting and, and you see right. things in certain places where it's like, oh, that 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 doesn't seem right. And so I, I think that that exists as well across the internet. I, it was a weird occasion. I, I didn't really yeah. want to watch the opening ceremony. I didn't really, you know, watching the, you know, watching the crowd and have that, you know, the whole supporter section try and, you know, turn them into like a capo stand for, uh, you know, an MLS team in that one end of the ground. It was all dudes, and, by the way. There were no women in that. Right. I mean, but it, there's that as well. There was the vi the viral video of this one Ecuador fan who I really enjoyed. And I hope I, I hope he'll live to tell the story of uh, doing like the, the money sign to the people <laughs> behind him, uh, which I thought was really, really funny. Um, but it, it's just a bizarre occasion. The whole thing is bizarre. And I hope that you and I can strike the right balance and Metal Arc as a whole can strike the right balance in terms of talking about this stuff uh, as well as the football. But uh, I thought maybe today is sort of like the last time that it'll be sort of in the four just because it was it was all about a day of celebrating Qatar and the rest of the tournament uh, will presumably only include Qatar two more times on the basis of today's performance. I will ask this. I didn't see a, a video shot during the game, especially once it was being dominated by Ecuador of the Qatari ruling family in the stadium. Did you? No, I, I only I only saw them at the beginning when when the Emir sat down next to Gianni Infantino. But no, that 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 did not pr uh, feature prominently in the broadcast. Although you imagine it would have, were they winning by a goal to nil or two goals to nil? Yeah, I, I'm I'm guessing that might have been the case. Um, I did just post my uh, daily uh, post uh, from on location here, um, my World Cup daily, and I wrote my thoughts about this game and and all the details of. Uh, U.S. Uh, news, and which we'll get to in a second here, um, but also my own interaction. So we're in this compound of townhouses here. There's a communal swimming pool, and nobody had been using it all week. And Guillaume Valaguet and I went over just this afternoon to take a dip, and there were two men and an eight-year-old kid, and they were just in today from Iran, from Tehran, and they were wearing Iran shirts and. 
uh, had just a wonderful conversation with them. Um, and I will say it reminded me, it's, it's one of the cooler things of World Cups, the interactions that you end up having. And I haven't actually had any real interactions with Qataris here yet. You don't run into that many of them. There aren't that many in the country, uh, but lots of people from other parts of the world. And I sort of not thought too much about, oh yeah, there's going to be a fair number of Iranians here. And, you know, it was just uh, really pleasant, the whole thing. And um, I, I just enjoy that about the World Cup. That's all. Yeah, it's, it's an experience I look forward to one day. And maybe when it comes to the U.S., I imagine the U.S. Uh, will attract uh, fans from all over the world. And, and there'll be 47 other countries worth of fans uh, oh that, that, that right. will be descending upon the United States. So uh, it, I, I, that's one of those things where there's so many things about the World Cup that, you know, even today, like I was getting excited, filled out my bracket, filled up a fantasy team, was in pools with a bunch of my friends and put bets in and all that stuff. And th there's so much to enjoy about the sporting spectacle. There's so much to enjoy about the sort of global cultural, you know, uh, perspective. But it's it sucks that, again, and we've talked about this before, these last two World Cups have been in places where you have to talk about other stuff. And, you know, hopefully, I mean, maybe the U.S. will be in a political situation in four years' time where right. that'll be a subject of conversation as well. But uh, one hopes that it can just be about this thing that we love again at some point. Yeah, let's hope the U.S. is not an authoritarian country when it co-hosts in 2026. <laughs> um, let's talk about the U.S. team. So Tyler Adams named captain today by Greg Berhalter for the entire World Cup. That is not a surprise. Um, Berhalter has rotated the captain's armband through members of his leadership council, which is about a half dozen players. Uh, and he also said that at one point, the leadership council told him that they thought for the World Cup, there should be one captain chosen. And so that was Tyler Adams today. And I'm always amazed when Tyler Adams speaks at these international things. And so today was slightly different than the media press events this week, all of which previously had taken place at the US training site. So on match day minus one, which is FIFA ease for the day before the game, um, the main media center is the site for every press conference for every team playing the next day. So tomorrow there's three games. There were six press conferences of about a half hour each. Uh, I went to the Netherlands one with Louis van Hall and Virgil van Dyke right before the uh, US one. And it's a pretty good setup and operation that FIFA has there because they have uh, uh, sort of headsets you can put on for live simultaneous interpretation. So Louis van Gaal did his entire press conference in Dutch, but uh, Van Dyke did in English. Um, but you can get around that because they have really good UN level interpreters. Uh, it was a little weird uh, at the end of the Dutch press conference to see a bunch of credentialed journalists go up and get their picture taken with Van Dyke. Um, yeah. Um, it, but also, look, there's there's different standards of ethics and behavior in different countries, obviously. I've sort of made my peace with journalists from other countries who wear their national team jersey to cover <laughs> world <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which happens quite a bit with certain countries. Um, but in any case, um, I thought both Burhalter and Adams uh, just spoke really well on the on the global stage at these international 
media press conferences in the main media center, you have a lot of foreign journalists. And so it's really interesting to see what kind of questions they get. Like they got questions today from a Dutch journalist and a Brazilian journalist. And they're a little different uh, than some of the, when it's just the US journalists on site asking the questions. But I thought they handled themselves really well. And, um, and you know, Adam's getting the captaincy was the main thing. Other news, I guess you would say, Burhalter was asked if Weston McKenney and Serginio Dest were as ready to go as they themselves said they were last night. And he said, they will figure in the game. He's not 100% certain if they will start, um, which is you know interesting, I guess. He said he liked the fact that he had five subs to work with because then he would feel uh, it's less of a risk to start them and not know exactly how long they might be able to go. I, I don't know where I am right now on this just because I don't know exactly, especially on McKenney, but Des too. I figure both are starters if they're healthy here. Um, and we'll see how that shakes out. He also said, uh, Luca Della Torre still not 90 minutes. He mentioned a couple other players in that category. And when pressed on which ones he's just said a couple of players. <laughs> Classic coach speak. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think with the, with the McKenney and Dest thing, um, I would, I think at this point I'd be a little surprised if McKenney started. As much of a gamer as he is and as as much as he sort of is sort of an emotional leader on the pitch, I feel like he can bring something off the bench and an impact and it would make more sense in my view to start Brendan Aronson in that three-man midfield along with Yunus Musa and Tyler Adams. Um, so I'd probably be surprised. If Dest weren't to play, I, I would be really curious not only how that would affect uh, the U.S. from in terms of who they play, but also how they play. Because I think Dest is probably the most technical player along that back line by some distance at this point, particularly if Tim Ream doesn't play. And so I think at that point, you fully become a transitional team, a knock it long, play in transition, try and win second balls, almost Red Bull the thing, uh, in order um, to to complement that group of players because Shaq Moore nor DeAndre Yedlin are sensational technical players. And so I wonder if you don't, pick desk, then you completely, you know, just lean into the way that you're training, lean into the things that have been said and become almost a completely different team and try and counteract what Wales does. But uh, yeah, I think, I think my guess is that probably desk will start, but McKinney won't, but that's based on, you know, what little information we're getting. And ultimately the world cup presents a sort of set of variables that we don't really know yet. We don't know, uh, you know, how the very short run up to this, will will change things. We don't know how much qualifying is being taken into consideration, form is being taken into consideration, how much the opponent is being taken into consideration. Because I, I one of the things that I've learned these last few days is precisely what Wales try to do. Rob Page today, their manager said, we're, we're the underdogs. You look at the US, you look at England, they're probably the, the teams that'd be favored to get out of this group. He's, he's playing a role. And Wales have sort of played a role. Uh, I saw today that they had the lowest possession figure of any team that qualified from Europe, uh, so of the in European World Cup qualifying, they don't really like to have the ball very much. And so, how does the U.S. sort of go into a game in which they're expected to break a team down when they haven't been very good at breaking teams down? And how do they approach that fact? Do you just sort of ugly it up for ninety minutes and try and nick a goal, or actually try and execute these patterns, these these the style of play that Greg Berhalter has been trying to implement for four years? You know, I was amused today that. Uh... In, he was just talking, Greg Berhalter was talking about substitutes. But remember the whole like thing he did about a, a year ago, 
talking about, he, he prefers the term solutions <laughs> over substitutes. <laughs> but the funniest thing about it was today he did it again, but he didn't explain it to like the international media. And I'm sure that yeah. they were totally confused when he kept talking about solutions when he actually meant substitutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, so that's where we are here. We are at the start of the World Cup. It is 29 days of soccer. Day one of the World Cup is behind us, and now it's going to come at great volume. You and I are going to have a podcast episode after the game tomorrow uh, on Monday, USA-Wales, and then we're going to go every other day at that point, which would include um, the US games and the group stage as well. Um, and really looking forward to all this, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Adam Elder. It's time for our latest Book Talk segment, and our guest is Adam Elder. He has a really good new book, New Kids in the World Cup, the totally late 80s and early 90s tale of the team that changed American soccer forever. Adam, congratulations on your book, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's awesome. I, I really enjoyed reading it, and... I even told you before we started recording, 1990, that World Cup was my gateway drug uh, to outdoor soccer. I had followed indoor soccer in the 80s, but never even really watched outdoor soccer. Um, and so I, I watched almost every game of the 90 World Cup, but I didn't follow wow. the U.S. during the qualifying tournament. And so I learned so much from your book following this U.S. team that got to the World Cup for the first time in 40 years. I guess just to start, can you give our listeners an idea of you know, what this book is about? Yeah, this book is about um, a young, very raw, very determined group of American players who, uh, as you said, qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 40 years. Um, they were they were our best soccer players, and yet they were they did this at a time when you know, so many Americans just either hated the sport or ignored the sport. Uh, and so they did it in relative anonymity. They did it with the right coach and the right mix of players. And they did it in a sense. Uh, I should say what they did is uh, really made possible everything that's that's come since in soccer in a way. Um, you can You can make a lot of arguments that a lot of the things that happened subsequently were, you know, knock on effects or at least enabled by what this young team accomplished. And I fell in love with it, with, with the, with, with the team and the story. 90 was a little bit before my time, but it's, it's a story that, um, the interesting thing, I guess what I was going to say is it's a, a group of players that made history and yet are totally overlooked. They've been overshadowed by the 94 team and, pretty much every other team that came, that came since. And when you talk to them, you realize that um, most of them, this team is A, very important to them, and B, that they are, um, you know, uh, they feel a little bit burned by it, being overlooked. It's interesting, right? Because the sport has grown so much in the United States since then, but it needed them to do what they did. And you talked to so many of the players on, on the U S team, uh, coaches, uh, you know, for this 1990 world cup, 
how are their memories? It seems like they were pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's what's interesting. You know, a lot of them, as this team was so important to them. I mean, the, the, the span of this book is like two and a half years from August 1988 to uh, June of, of 1990 and like through, through the end of the World Cup. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking to them so many years later and it's, it's such a short span of time. And yet there it's it was such an important time period for them, you know, so um, some of them, you know, have absolutely photographic memories, you know, to um, Tony Miola, uh, John Harks, and then some of the some of the guys, you know, behind the scenes, um, the administrators, the, the equipment manager, folks like that, um, that uh, it just it really left a mark on all of them. And, you know, some of them were some of them were kind of amateur photographers. And we're talking about a time, you know, before everyone had a camera on their phone and everything. So um, it was, I, I have to say, their memories are, are very vivid. And what's incredible to me too, then, now that you mention it, is how they can remember games that they were in. With that adrenaline pumping, you know, these, these momentous occasions that took place so many years ago. That's, that to me is remarkable. And I guess it shows how important this was to them. Paul Caligiuri obviously scored the goal down in Trinidad and Tobago that sent the U.S. to the 1990 World Cup. There's a great scene early in the book at a, at a party in the Hollywood Hills, and I'm wondering, <laughs> Paul Caligiuri, and I'm wondering if you could share just a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I should say that what it led to was the making of this sort of infamous rap video that uh, folks around U.S. soccer and fans like us know all about called Victory, which featured the likes of O.J. Simpson and Marcus Allen, Luke Robitaille, all these sort of, you know, stars of 1990, you could say, uh, recorded in uh, A&M Studios in Hollywood. But where it all started was uh, Paul Caligiuri coming back from the 88 Olympics, um, had a friend, he's, you know, he's, a, he's an Angelino, had a friend in the uh, record industry and they got into this party at Michael Lippmann's house, who is the manager for George Michael and hundreds of other um, A-list musicians and stars of the day. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very much, I, it's this great fish out of water scene where, you know, there's this, there's this guy who in, in an alternate universe would be an absolute idol to, to millions if only America loves soccer. But, you know, he's, he's the anonymous one floating through this party with all these celebrities. And he bumps into, um, Shelley Azoff, who is, you know, L.A. royalty, married to Irving Azoff, who's manager of the Eagles and Van Halen and Steely Dan and so on and so forth. And it sort of kickstarts this chain of events that uh, eventually leads to this rap video, which um, we still talk about and, and watch so many years later. <laughs> you know what? I was hoping, and I, I don't work at Fox anymore, I tried to suggest to, <laughs> to some folks at Fox one time because there was a music video before the 1990 World Cup with the U.S. There was a music video before the 1994 World Cup. Uh, I remember stonewashed jeans being very prevalent. Oh, uh, man. In that Everywhere. Time. And I wish <laughs> they would do that with the current team. It would be a great throwback. And I think it, it would. Because like, the U.S. wasn't the only team that did that sort of thing before a World Cup. Because I've, I've seen, have you seen the, the German national team before 94 did a video with the village people? I, yes, I came across that one time. I was blown away. Yeah. Jurgen <laughs> like Klinsmann singing with the village people. And it's awesome yeah. in the, the, the funniest of ways. But I, I wish somebody 
why not the U.S. would would do that again? But um, yeah, that was How, just... I, I don't understand. How can you go wrong with something like that? You know, everyone's gonna love it. The I mean, the the players love it. The celebrities love it. All the fans love it. You know, it's a sure thing. I agree. Who could you get that would be fill the O.J. Simpson role of somebody who's about to do <laughs> something <laughs> somewhat career changing? Yeah, I don't know. The funny thing about that video is he was like the guy in in that video. You know, he was the the, the star of stars who showed up on that night, you know, at the behest of of the Azoffs and with Entertainment Tonight cameras rolling and everything. Yeah, (laughs) they still laugh about it to this day. (laughs) All the players. So this was the first U.S. men's national team to get through CONCACAF World Cup qualifying successfully. And... There had been so many failures over the years before this. And, and what's interesting is it actually hasn't gotten that much easier. I mean, we sort of expect <laughs> us to get through now. And, and when they didn't in 2018, it was a disaster. But it, it right. you know, you have some good stuff, some good stories about things crazy things that happened to the U.S. team during qualifying for 1990. Are there any that that stand out to you the most? Oh, so many. Yeah. That's what's so interesting. You know, I I guess, I mean, oversight back then, FIFA oversight of of World Cup qualifiers was just so lax and pretty much anything goes. I think, I forget who I was talking to, but someone summed it up really well is that when you went to, to Central America, he said, they really, really don't want you to get much sleep. <laughs> and so the, I guess a couple of them that, that stand out to me are um, an elevator that mysteriously stopped working. And, you know, who, who knows if that's just part of daily life in, um, in, it was in Tegucigalpa in a game against El Salvador um, which was played at a neutral venue, which is kind of another story altogether. But it was Tony Miola's first start in a World Cup qualifier. And I think like 15 guys got into this hotel elevator after the after the pregame meeting, going up to their rooms. And Tony, who just was this unflappable 20-year-old goalkeeper, was, was getting a panic attack like a couple hours before his game, which obviously wasn't good. Um, and they had to climb out the, the ceiling of the elevator, you know, like, like out of speed or some kind of action movie, you know, uh, which made them late to the game and so on and so forth. Um, some other ones that jumped to mind. I mean, everything that happened in Trinidad is just mind blowing. The, the lead up to that game is you could say it's cinematic, but it's almost beyond that. You know, these players, you know, they they flew away. They left Miami. In, you know, leaving a country that where soccer was like the least important thing in the world at the time and landed on this tiny rock in the Caribbean where everything, nothing else mattered. You know, soccer was the only thing and they're playing in the big game. And I mean, the, the entire country was waiting for them at the airport. There's people like on the roof of the airport chanting at the U.S. team. They were lined three deep on the highway going to the hotel they were there were hundreds of thousands in the streets on the on the day of the game. The pregame festivities were like the opening ceremonies of the Olympics or or the World Cup or something. I mean, it was it was just remarkable how much was was riding on this game. And to a group of players who you know were were used to playing in front of um, some wonderful but small crowds at the St. Louis Soccer Park and elsewhere. I mean, this was. 
this was straight out of a movie. You know, this was playing in the, the quote-unquote, the big game. And what was meant to fire up Trinidad, in a way, ended up firing up the U.S. men's national team for the game. In addition to all this, like, unbelievable pressure that we had, that they had sitting on them in the build-up to this game. Yeah, it, it's... It's such an incredible thing that everything around that Trinidad game and, and what was writing <laughs> on it and in the U.S. getting the win that they needed uh, from Calvary's yeah. goal. And there's some figures who are on this team, including some very big personalities that not everyone knows about. Um, yeah, for sure. And, I didn't. And well, in, in one in particular is the late David Van Oli. Um Mm. And I wanted to ask you about him because not even some fairly hardcore U.S. soccer fans today are aware of who Dave Van Oli was, what kind of guy he was, what he was about, and I'm wondering if you can fill them in a little bit. Yeah, David Van Oli was uh, from Manhattan Beach, California, UCLA's goalkeeper, um, and you know it. This is such a lazy cliche, but he really was larger than life in so many ways. You know, he was he was not only the mascot of the team, he would lead them out on nights on the town. He would welcome any new player onto the team. He'd be the, fir- the, the first one to welcome them. You know, he would, even though he was leading them out on the town after a game, he would also be leaving, you know, a, a bag of donuts outside their hotel room doors on the road, like for the morning after when, when they're all hung over. Um, he was, he was the absolute life of the party and, um, passed away. I believe I, I can't remember offhand. I think, um, what in 2008 or, or, or something Way like that. Young. Yes, for sure. Um, he, what's, what's interesting about Vinoli, he was so outspoken and gregarious that uh, it sounds like um, a man like Bob Gansler, the, the coach of this team, they were just, you know, such polar opposites that um, they inevitably didn't, didn't see eye to eye. And what, one thing I should mention about Vinoli too, I, I, I didn't even talk about his goalkeeping skills. He is, he's built a little bit like John Belushi, but... <laughs> In a, or I should say more like Charles Barkley because his athletic skills were legendary. Mm-hmm. He, you know, growing up in Manhattan Beach, he was this incredible beach volleyball player. He could reverse slam dunk a basketball like Charles Barkley. Um, and uh, he eventually kind of lost his position to Tony Miola. However, he stayed on the team and he became this just kind of the best locker room leader that, that uh, a team could ever ask for. And he's one of those players that. I should say one of those guys that whenever you bring him up to one of these players and we start talking about about him, I mean, some guys clearly get emotional talking about him. He was just this incredibly wonderful teammate and human being who, for the team, was just almost everything to him. I didn't even meet him, and I'm kind of getting emotional, like just just Mm -hmm. thinking about what some of these guys said. You know, they they compared him... I I know there's like way too many uh, late eighties references in in my book and and throughout it, but a lot of people compared him to (laughs) a lot of people compared him to Norm on Cheers, where he's the kind of guy who, when he walks in the room, everyone, everyone's excited to see him. I, it's, it's hard to think of another person kind of like him. I mean, he sounds so uh, almost mythical in a way, I guess. And in yet another figure that if this was Brazil or some other 
total soccer established soccer country he would have been a legendary figure to millions and millions of people and it's just great to see his story being told in in this book along with the others uh who are part of it i want to ask about the world cup itself in Italy, the U.S. draws into Italy's group, the host country, ends up playing Italy in Rome. And yes, the U.S. got off to a bad start and had a, a bad loss to Czechoslovakia, um, but had a pretty legendary performance and result for that matter against Italy. And I love the section of your book where you talk about the, the USA-Italy game and describe it in detail. As including Peter Vermees's chance at immortality to equalize oh, in this game. Yes. How did you want to go about putting together that section? To back up a little bit, I guess, because because part of it, the the importance was was building it up. They were the the U.S. team was so excited to be playing in their first game, and it, it was a tough group, no doubt about it. And the Czechoslovakia matchup was interesting because they had so underestimated Czechoslovakia. This was a team of newly freed workers. You know, the, they had just undergone the Velvet Revolution, and they were now on the world stage in front of you know, in in, in front of the country that hosts Syria, the the best league in the world at the time, playing for um, auditioning, you could say, for the for the best teams in the world. And this was a rude awakening, not only from the Czechoslovakians, but the referees too in the Czechoslovakia game. It all felt very much like an initiation or like paying your dues for for the U.S. Um, Yes, they went into it naively, but they did not catch a single break. Um, it, it was very rough. And the reaction to it was uh, pretty predictable. And everybody, I mean, if, if Czechoslovakia could do that to the U.S., everybody reasoned that what's Italy going to do to the U.S.? Italy had just won the World Cup in 1982 um, and, and had this, you know, a, amazing looking team. And so... The U.S. found themselves just completely adrift and doubting themselves ahead of this this Italy game, just as the entire world was was doubting them, and you know, no one in the U.S. was was paying them much attention. They they looked like these they were made to look like these total imposters on the world stage. Um, to use another '80s reference, I, it's it it's like that everyone found out they're kind of like the Milli Vanilli of soccer is was what they were worried about, and so um, and so the. I guess the interesting thing about Italy is that's what I love about this team. They they were a bunch of very mentally tough, mentally strong guys who were quick learners because they had to be. They were, um, I mean, you know, what's the best way to say this? They Doing anything for the first time is this really difficult thing to do. And they had to figure it out as they go, as they went. And that's what they did getting through CONCACAF and, and in order to get to the World Cup. And it, they just, it just showed them to be this extremely strong uh, group of players. Building up to this, to this Italy game, um, they just knew, they somehow knew they just weren't going to get their asses kicked this time. The whole world had them, like, literally predictions of them losing 10 to 0. And they went out and with their backs against the wall, not to use a cliche, but they played the absolute game of their lives. And they knew, and, and Coach Gansler knew, that uh, Italy would be uh, overconfident and overestimating them. And, you know, they just, uh, they got it done. 
well, I should say they almost got it done. <laughs> There's, it's so easy to have Freudian slips talking about that game because the U.S. that U.S. team played the played the absolute game of their lives. I would argue, and and others do, that they put U.S. soccer on the map with with that result, even though uh, it was a narrow loss. Not to not to spoil anything here, and um, it was a tense, not not a wonderful game, but uh, a really tense and very satisfying game to watch. And you mentioned the the Peter Vermees chance and talking to people in that stadium or talking to people who were there. Um, it was like a pin dropped when that ball was just right on the line and like spinning in place. I mean, it was, again, we talk about these cinematic moments and that was one of them for sure where it's as if time stopped. One person who I got to know and really like um, when I was working at Fox Sports was Dr. Joe Macknick. And uh. he's their, their rules expert. And he's done so many things in his career in soccer over the years. It's absolutely incredible. I had him on the podcast yeah. a couple of years ago and we talked about stuff. So anyone who's just become a soccer fan who's listening, you know, in the last few years, if all you know about Joe, Dr. Joe Machnick is that he's the rules guy on TV, he was connected. He was part of the 1990 World Cup team as an assistant coach. And I got the sense from reading your book that he was pretty helpful in your reporting. Oh, absolutely. He was, I mean, you mentioned how deep this guy's roots go in, in soccer. He connected me to lots of people. He shared photos with me. He recommended people I should be talking to. Um, he, he himself has a great memory and, and a good, um, you know, there's some people who just have a knack for telling stories. And, and Dr. Joe is, is definitely one of them. He's wonderful. And, you know, he's, he's kind of one of these people that um, I think he has a, 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 a sense of occasion as well. You know, that's, and, you know, so some of the stuff he brought up made me realize too, that with this book and this, and this 1990 team, there's almost this, um, almost this, they have this like Forrest Gump, like sort of knack for being witnesses to, to big history at the time, which, which I loved, you know, they, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of this cause it's Dr. Joe who would send me photos of, of them at the Berlin wall or crossing checkpoint Charlie or talking about, you know, these, these sort of scenes from, from what central America looked like in the 1980s and, and so on and so forth. November 19th, 1989 is the day that Paul Caligari scored against Trinidad. The anniversary of that is coming up right uh, before the start of this World Cup in Qatar. Should we make a bigger deal of that day? I think we absolutely should. It's it's when Yeah, it's it's when America really formally sort of entered the world stage and joined the world's game, I think. I mean, you you can't argue that. Um it's such a shame that, you know, I, I, I get the sense that people wanted to sort of make a bigger deal of it at the time, you know, calling it the shot heard around the world, which was, of course, a, an original baseball reference and everything. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it really should be. It's just there's so many things working against it, I think. Number one, that, you know, few people were paying attention. And also, you know, what's, what's so funny about that game is it was, it was tape delayed by like two hours or something. It was preempted for, for an NFL game. And, and the TV ratings were like 432,000 people watched it in the United States or something like that. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's not like they scored against, you know, Germany or Brazil or something like that. Um, and, and it's such an odd goal. 
I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I've never seen a goal like that in my life. And, and I don't know quite how he scored it or even though I, um, went into length describing it, I guess, but, um, I really should. It's, it's, an, I, I really think we should, we should celebrate it more. It's an important date and an amazing goal. And it was really the start of everything we're seeing now. That's what's so cool to me about, about this story. I, I fell in love with the story for, for a million reasons, the way that, you know, it, any writer sort of really starts chewing on a story. But, um, but what's so cool to me about this one is that all of the things that these people dreamed about in the book and everything that we see now, it all came true. I mean, these guys, not only the players, but, but, but the administrators and, 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 and the folks around it, they made it happen. And that's, it's, it's so cool. And I mean, if you were to go back to like 1988 or 1999 and imagine this sort of thing, it, it'd be impossible to imagine. There's no way. And yet we did it. They did it. I mean, it's incredible, right? I mean, those things that you're talking about of like having actual soccer stadiums in the United States, and they're all over the place now of having a professional league like Major League Soccer, of having the the World Cup be a truly big time event on American television, which I would argue didn't really even start happening or happen until 2010 when ESPN invested as much as they did. And, and so, yeah, like all of those things that they wanted to see have happened. And that's so cool when you think about it. And I hope more people will read this book and recognize these players, the people involved with the 1990 team for the role that they've had. I sure hope so too. You know, so many of them, I, as, as I said in the beginning are, um, you know, they're, they're overlooked, even though a lot of them are working in soccer, and they have a slight chip on their shoulder about it. Maybe, you know, that's sort of how they played, and that's that's what all of these players had in common, and that's, I think, had a, had a big role in, in all of their success. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I sure hope so. I sure hope so. And, you know, one more thing to, to your point a moment ago about the stadium is one, one thing I love, one, one thing that really sticks out to me. Uh, this moment early on in the book, um, it's a, it's a crucial uh, game against Jamaica, August thirteenth, nineteen eighty eight. The U.S. has to win in order to reach what we you know later would call the hex or what, what was it this last time the octo or yeah. <laughs> I forget how many teams are in it. But um, anyway, so uh, JP Delacamera is doing the intro um, ahead of the game, and he's he's sort of the camera's panning around the St. Louis Soccer Park, you know. 6,500 people, this sort of wonderful little place, um, you know, aluminum bleachers, bit windswept. Um, and he says something like, this is the only facility of its kind in the country. And one day, hopefully there will be many more of these. And it's just like, you hear that now and it's just, it's the coolest thing, man. Makes me smile. It, it does. Me too. As does the fact that JP Delacamera will be calling World Cup games in 2022 <laughs> and has had an amazing Hall of Fame career. The author is Adam Elder. The book is New Kids in the World Cup, the totally late 80s and early 90s tale of the team that changed American soccer forever. Adam, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Grant. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Adam Elder as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. 
You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.